turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. And we are going to be looking at the passage that discusses Jesus' cleansing of the temple. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And now when... He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this church. I thank You for all that You've gathered here and and the gifts that You've given them that they might be an expression of Your Son to the world. I pray that You would continue to bind us together in love, that You would strengthen us through Your Word, that we might be more holy, more loving, more Christ-like, and more effective in our ministry towards one another, and especially to the world, to reaching them with the gospel, the good news that salvation can be found in Jesus Christ. And I pray that You would give me special grace to make Your Word clear, that You would strengthen me in my weakness, and I pray that You would... Allow this passage and the example that you give us in your Son and His passion that you would form in us, help us to have a greater, more complete vision for our life as we look at Him. And I pray that that would be clear to each one of us how you would have us live in light of this truth. And in order for that to be accomplished, Spirit, we need Your help. In our own intellect, in our own strength, we are aimless. We are not wise without You making us wise. The wisdom we need is supernatural, and I pray that You would give us that supernatural wisdom that we might live the lives that You've called us to live. That You would give us the courage 
the passion and the love and the vision that we need to have as faithful servants of You. And I pray that You would give me assistance in accomplishing that. We ask these things in Your name. Amen. Some of the most useful instruments in the world, useful tools, I've discovered are often relatively simple things. The nozzle, as in the nozzle that you might put on a garden hose, is one of those things that I've found significant value in. Just the other day when I was washing my car, I was considering how useful the nozzle was in accomplishing the various tasks that I needed to accomplish, whether it's just filling a a bucket of water up to get the soap suddy to blasting crusted dirt off the fender. Adjusting the nozzle uh, was significant in helping you know, deal with the various needs that arose in that process. Now consider that the nozzle's simple purpose is just to focus water and direct it so that it might you know, accurate, be more accurately directed to the right place with appropriate intensity. And the more focused the nozzle is, of course, therefore the more intense the water will be that's directed and also the more focused it will be. Likewise, when we loosen up the nozzle, less water comes through at once, and it's also less intense and also less accurate. You can't pinpoint necessarily what you're trying to hit. More focus, more intensity. Less focus, less intensity. And it's in that that I think the nozzle actually serves as a, as a fair illustration of zeal. A person who's zealous for something is both intense as well as focused in their pursuit. There is a particular thing that they are focused upon, but it's not just that they're intently focused upon it. There's an intensity as well. There's a passion. And so I like to say that zeal is an expression of a particular and a passionate pursuit. I like to say that also because I like alliteration. So you got three P's. Zeal is a, an expression of a particular and a passionate pursuit. It's both focused as well as intense. When a person directs all their action and attention to accomplishing a particular purpose, we would say that they are zealous for that particular thing. The more focused on accomplishing that purpose they are, the more zealous they appear. And people can be zealous for really almost an infinite variety of things, whether it's a conquering a video game or winning a bake-off, selling magazines, or even helping their favorite candidate to win an election. People can be zealous, focused on one particular thing for almost anything. And it seems to me that I think the most culturally acceptable thing for people to be zealous in is... A sports team. After all, those who have a particular sports team that they follow are considered fanatics. You know, short for or long for fan. Right? And people are proud of being a fan for a certain team. Well, it's short for fanatic. They're zealous for that team. They'll they'll buy all of the the clothes, all of, you know, the memorabilia. They'll, They'll spend, you know, thousands of dollars to get season tickets or to go to 
games and, and they'll pay for special you know, cable packages so that they can watch their team. And, and they always set aside the time they need to watch their team play. They're focused and they're zealous for that particular thing. And obviously some people are more focused upon that team or that activity than other people. But the more focused and the more intense, obviously the more zealous they are. And so when we give something a disproportionate amount of focus in time or in energy or in money, then we would be considered zealous for that thing, whatever it is. And the more attention we present to an objective, the more zealous we appear for that objective. More focus, more passion, therefore more zeal. And the English word zeal is a descendant, actually, of the Greek word zelao. That's where we get it from. And in classical Greek, this word referred essentially to the state of passionate committal to a person or a cause. The word means to have a state of passionate committal to a person or a cause. And what this text of Scripture that, we'll, that we're looking at this afternoon illustrates is that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was zealous for the worship of God the Father, for pure and undistracted worship of God the Father. His particular and passionate pursuit was a zeal for pure worship. That's what's behind all of the activity that we see in this passage, a zeal for pure and undistracted worship. He wanted God's people to worship Him with all their hearts, all their mind, and all their strength. Let's look firstly at verse 13. It introduces the passage by saying that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So it was the time of the Passover. Thousands of Jews would congregate from all over the Promised Land, And they would come to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God as a nation, together. And some pilgrims had actually traveled for days, some weeks, in order to participate in this most sacred of traditions that had been passed down from their forefathers. The Passover served to remind Jews of God's grace in rescuing them from their enslavement in Egypt. And not only that... But after rescuing them from their enslavement, he had set them apart to be his particular people. He would be their God. And they would be his people, his own possession. And some of the pilgrims took with them doves and oxen and sheep, which they would sacrifice at the temple as a memorial offering. And if a pilgrim ended up not bringing a sacrifice or an animal that they could offer up, or if the sacrifice was de- deemed deficient by a moon kick or an animal inspector, they could actually purchase an animal from an approved vendor from the temple. Which is why, as more and more pilgrims came through the temple gates, they would hear the noise of bleeding sheep and bellowing oxen. They would hear their noises reverberating throughout the temple. The temple area was also filled with money changers whose whose service was similar to that of banking. 
the Jews required a half shekel tax to be paid for the temple. It was a, it was a tribute tax given to the temple, but it had to be paid ex- exactly in that half shekel. And given the fact that there was lots of different currencies because of the Roman occupation, the, the money they brought might not be in, they might not have any half shekels. So they would have to trade in order to get the right amount of tax to pay for that requirement. So as the pilgrims entered the sanctuary, they would have heard the shouts of hagglers and the clanging of coins, which would raise the, the volume of the cacophony and effectively distract the worshipers from the solemnity of their purpose. Hearing shouts and bleeding sheep, bellowing oxen, noise. When the whole purpose of the pilgrims being there was to meditate upon the truths that God had given them in the Passover. And so as they hear these things, suddenly from the entrance of the temple, they hear the crack of a whip. A loud cry echoed throughout the temple grounds. Animals began stampeding out of the courtyard. People began shouting as tables start getting overturned and coins spilling onto dusty ground. And some pilgrims wondered, who in the world is provoking such chaos in God's holy temple? And of all times, at the time of the Passover, who would do such a thing? And then all eyes turned to witness who the disturber of the peace was. And there stood Jesus of Nazareth, whip in hand, and declaring with full authority, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So what provoked this peaceful shepherd of souls, the prince of peace, to disturb the peace by throwing the temple of God into disarray? driving out livestock, dumping out coins, overturning tables, and rebuking merchants in a less than gentle manner? The answer is given in chapter 2, verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. It was Jesus' zeal for Israel's worship of God that drove him, it consumed him, that he would drive out everything that would stand in its way. Jesus wanted Israel, God's people, to worship him with undistracted purity. And two words should be highlighted in this verse. Zeal and consume. These two words actually unpack the significance of what took place, and they explain Christ's purpose in driving out the money changers. Zeal and consume. So let's look first at his zeal for pure and undistracted worship. The first and most obvious reason for Jesus' cleansing of the temple is that he was angry because of what had happened to the temple. It had virtually become a marketplace. It was like a circus with all these animals and Shouts of hagglers. See, since the 
money changers and all their wares had entered the temple grounds, worshipers could no longer experience the temple worship as God had actually planned it. Instead of being focused on the imagery and the weighty truths that were trying to be conveyed, they were distracted by the intrusion of a marketplace. Instead of being struck by the majesty and reality of their Creator, remembering God's promises and the preservation of Israel, they were instead struck with the bellowing of oxen. Instead of recounting that the consequence of their sin was the shedding of blood, they were distracted by the counting of coins. Instead of meditating on the prophet's words that alluded to a greater sacrifice than bulls and sheep, they were meditating on how they could make the best deal. Worship had been consumed by the intrusion of the world. And subsequently, Jesus was consumed with fury. Jesus longed for His people to worship God in undistracted joy and purity. This was their created purpose, after all. Many of you are familiar with uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism's answer to what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we were created for, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And this idea is supported throughout Scripture as well. In the final book of the Bible, we have this passage in Revelation 4.11, which is this, this culminating scene. And it says this, Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. God is worthy to receive all glory and honor and power because He created everything. And they only exist because He created them. He alone is worthy. Also in the prophet Isaiah, God Himself proclaims that man was created to extol His glory. In Isaiah 43, 7, He states, Everyone who is called by My name whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Again, he created them so that he would be glorified. That's their purpose. But even in the sacred temple, the very place that had been set aside for God to be exalted, that the people could focus on the glory and majesty of God as they go through the the ritual cleansing and they see the sacrifices... And they remember all that had been said by the prophets. Even in the temple, the world had snuck in. Jesus had no greater passion than to see his father glorified. And when he encountered the audacity and the impropriety of a marketplace in the temple, he was consumed with zeal to turn the tables on those who got between the the. Worship His Father deserved. Between Him and His people. And Jesus, more than any other man, also knew. He knew how deserving the Father was of of worship, but He was also aware of how necessary, how, how much we needed to worship God. Yes, He knew how, how much God deserved to be worshipped, but He also knew how much we need to worship Him. 
We need to worship God as much as God deserves to be exalted. Both those things are true. And this whole fiasco in the temple had basically got a wedge in between both of those purposes. Since man was created for the purpose of exalting God, no man will be fully satisfied unless that's exactly what they're doing. Because that's what they're created for. That's what they're designed for. And they will not be satisfied until they fulfill this purpose. And therefore, it was Jesus' zeal for the Father's right to be worshipped and His zeal for His people's need to be worshipped that drove Him into this audacious act. It was those two things. His zeal for God's right to be worshipped and our need to worship God. But secondly, the other reason Jesus disrupted the temple was to provoke His own death. This is highlighted in the word consumed. You'll note that after this event, John tells us that the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And this verse that's quoted is actually from Psalm 69, verse 9. And in that psalm, it depicts David crying out to God in grief because because of, his, because of David's devotion to God, it had ended up in his hurt, in his pain, in his grief. And David is crying out, God, if, if, why is it that I am so devoted for, to you and it's causing more grief, more pain, more death in my life? Jesus, or David's love for God resulted not in peace, but rather tremendous suffering. And the word consume literally means to be eaten up, like we would use it today. We consume a meal. David is saying, I am being eaten up because of my devotion to you. He was being eaten up by his adversaries, his enemies. And then by applying it to Christ, the disciples recognized that it was Jesus' zeal for purity and undistracted worship in the temple that eventually led to his crucifixion. Jesus' zeal for the Father's house led to his own death. It was his zeal for the Father's worship that motivated him in this action, and it's actually what provoked the death that came later. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, Jesus' statement here in the temple, that he would actually rebuild the temple, that he could, you could tear it down and he would raise it up in three days, that statement is what ultimately led to the accusation that put him on trial. If you flip to Mark 14 where it actually 
depicts this trial of Jesus before the chief priests. You will read this. Mark 14, verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put Him to death. But they found none. For many false witnesses came against Him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against Him, saying, We heard Him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build up another not made with hands. So that's the accusation. That's what they bring to the court. That's their evidence. This statement that he made at the very beginning of his ministry. And although it was a kangaroo court, Jesus was eventually condemned and crucified because of that statement. And therefore, with this claim, Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecy of Psalm 69, which is, it therefore serves to prove that he really was the Messiah. Moreover, this act allows him to perfectly fulfill his desire for pure and undistracted worship. The fact that he made this statement and what this statement led to is what allows Jesus to accomplish the purpose for which he came. What was Jesus' purpose again? That his people might worship the Father in spirit and truth, without any distraction, with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. That they would exalt God as God deserves. How did Jesus fulfill that desire? It was through Christ's death and resurrection that believers are enabled to worship the Father in spirit and truth. John 4, 21-24. It was Christ's death on the cross that freed believers from their worship of self and allowed them to fully worship God. See, that's our problem. Our problem is is we're born into sin. Since sin came into the world, sin has infected all of us. And you you want to know how we know what sin looks like? We were designed to worship God, the Creator, the One who has always existed, who's created all things that we already said. And you know who we live for, each one of us? We live for ourselves. The decisions we make are based on what we want, what's going to exalt us, what's going to make us feel good. Even after being saved, we struggle with that. We, we feel the, the self-centeredness. That's, that's an evidence of sin. Well, how do you get rid of that? You have to die to yourself. Well, who's going to die to themselves? Nobody's going to die to themselves unless they're born again, unless they're made a new creation. They've got to get their hearts changed. Well, how does one change their heart? You can't. God's got to change it for you. God's got to call you. God's got to change your heart. Jesus' understanding of man's great need is reflected actually in the next paragraph. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. 
As you're reading that, it, it's kind of off-putting. They're, they, they see what he's doing. They see the signs. They believe in his name. And you'd expect him to therefore say, wow, yes, come and follow me. But he doesn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in man. He knew what impressed them was the signs. And that even though they might be impressed by the signs, that doesn't mean they have a changed heart. Jesus knew what was in man. That they could see all the signs in the world, but that's not, gonna, that's not what's going to allow them to follow him. To worship him in spirit and truth. Something greater needs to take place. The point of this section is to highlight the fact that even though many people believed in Jesus because of his signs... Jesus recognized that this did not mean mission accomplished. We can go home. Because he knew mere signs is not what man needed. He needed new hearts. And that's why in the very next chapter in John, John chapter 3, Jesus sits down with one of the foremost thinkers in all of Israel, Nicodemus. And he explains to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes and wants to have some questions. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, in order for a person to enter the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again. And this confuses Nicodemus. We'll get here shortly. In a few weeks or so. Nicodemus is like, wow, the man's got to enter his mother's womb? He didn't get it. Jesus' point is, you can't do it, Nicodemus. It's not by following the law. You need to be changed. You need to be transformed. You need to be born again. And therefore, Jesus' mission was not just to show us who he was, but Jesus' mission was to fulfill his calling to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We need our sins to be taken care of so that we can be restored to God. And that is why there's such an emphasis on John the Baptist being a witness to the Messiah. Men needed Jesus. They needed signs to confirm that Jesus was the Messiah. So there's this emphasis on that there's these signs and there's these witnesses confirming Jesus is the Messiah. But it's the Messiah's purpose was not just to show up. The Messiah's purpose was to be the Lamb of God. He had to die. If he just showed up and he established his kingdom, yes, there would be peace on earth while he reigned. But guess what happens after you die? After living under his rule for however long. After you die, you have to come to God and face punishment for your sins. Because unless the Lamb of God dies and takes care of your sins, there is no covering. Blood, the blood of bulls and goats would not be sufficient. Jesus had, couldn't just come. Jesus had to come and die. And now... That he has died and gone up to be with the Father. He's just waiting for that message to go throughout the world. And then he'll come again. After all people can hear that their sins can be forgiven. Men needed signs to confirm that Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus didn't need any signs. He knew what was in men's hearts. He knew they needed their hearts to be changed before they'd follow him. Because their need was not merely intellectual. They didn't just need evidence he was the Messiah. They needed a transformed heart. So it wasn't spiritual need. In most gospel outlines used in evangelistic training programs do an excellent job emphasizing how one can be saved. That, that a person 
by believing in the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, confirming that he truly was the Son of God, that their salvation can be accomplished. But the gospel is more than the good news of how we can be saved from our sins, how we can be saved from the wrath of God. That's what gets emphasized, and for good reason. But it's more than that. The gospel is more than just our salvation from the wrath of God. Essentially, the gospel is the good news of Christ restoring us and enabling us to fulfill our created purpose. It's not just salvation from wrath. It's salvation from sin, freeing us to actually fulfill our created purpose of worshiping God with all our hearts. So the gospel is not just about salvation, it's about worship. The gospel is the good news that we can fulfill our created purpose. Regeneration, that is being born again, is what allows us to finally worship God in spirit and truth. Our lives as Christians, now that we've been saved, are all about worshiping God. This one pursuit is what produces a zeal for God. It was Jesus' zeal that all his all people would worship the Father in spirit and truth. And when that he saw this distraction, he dealt with it. And it should be our zeal as well that we too would worship God with all of our hearts. See, Christ's zeal for God's house was rooted in his understanding of what we were created for. And therefore, just as it consumed him, it could it should consume us. It should be our particular and passionate pursuit. It should be what we live for. It should be it should be what defines each of one of our lives. When people think of us, when they hear your name, they should say, so and so, he is zealous or she is zealous for the worship of God. That should be what defines our life. Not how much zeal we have for our favorite NASCAR driver or our favorite sports team, our favorite curriculum our favorite candidate, but a zeal for God. That should be our all-consuming purpose. It should consume us in being our particular and passionate pursuit, but it should also consume us in the same way it consumed Him. Death. We'll see in Scripture that our worship of God is reflected in our death to self. We show that we truly love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength by dying to ourselves, living no longer for us, but for Him. He is what matters. His will is what matters, not what we want. As he says in Romans 12.1, Paul says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our worship is being sacrifices. Yes, we worship when we sing songs. Yes, we worship when we pray. Yes, we worship when we share the gospel. But all of that should be because we live for Him. 
Because He is what matters and we recognize that. And what brings us more delight is not when we are noticed, when we are cared for, when we are loved. But what should give us more joy than anything else is when we see God the Father being exalted. God the Father being honored. God the Father uh, being worshipped by even the death of His saints. And as painful as it is to see that sort of life being lived out, because we love people. We hate hearing about Christians getting hacked down just because they, they take the name of Christ. And at the same time, we should love it because that it shows that for them, the worship of God the Father means far more than this life. And we love that. While at the same time, it pains us greatly. Paul also writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's that born again. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And let's not just glance over that. We talk so much about the reality of Christ's death on the cross. That, it, that, that's, that a great news can often become familiar and that's dangerous. But remember this. Brothers and sisters, the Son of God died for you. He, he died. You feel great love when people make sacrifices to you. Jesus died for you. Think about what, that, what, what the, the most appropriate response to that truth should be in your life. He died to save you from hell. Think what you owe Him. And you don't serve Him because you owe Him. Right? You know you've been forgiven. You don't want to be get legalistic, but just out of an expression of joy and worship. You've been freed from self. How could you not... I want to give everything for His sake. Which is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.15, you hear me quote this text all, all the time, but this is why. He died for all that those might li- who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for those, their sake died and was raised. Jesus came so that you might live. Likewise, Let us die so that others also might live. Christ is also, therefore, our example, not only in His cleansing of the temple, but He's our example in His dying to His own interests, manifested particularly in His willingness to go to the cross. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And remember what the context of Philippians 2 is talking about. Paul starts that section by saying, let this mindset be yours, Christian, that was also Christ's mindset. What was Christ's mindset? He humbled himself to the point of going to the cross. Let this be your mindset as well. He's our example. Christ was zealous for the worship of God because He knew the worth of God and He knew how desperate we are 
to find our satisfaction in worshiping Him as well. Some key texts about Jesus' understanding of God's worth in being worshipped. John 17.3, you're probably familiar with this. Jesus says, as He's praying to God the Father, and this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You've sent. And He prays a little bit later on. I'll pick up in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom You've given to Me, may be with Me where I am, to see My glory that You've given Me, because You loved Me before the foundation of the world. See, understand the heart of Christ here. The reason Christ drove out the money chase, the reason He makes this statement that would provoke His own death is because He wants us to see God in all of His glory, to, to worship Him, right? I want, that they may be with Me where I am to see My glory that You've given Me. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know You, I know You and these know that You sent Me. I have made known to them Your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is what it's all about. That we might know God and see Him in all His glory. If we knew what Christ knew of God and His glory, and if we understood what He understood about man and his depravity, we would readily understand, we would readily appreciate why Jesus did what He did to the money changers. But the reality of the matter is we frequently forget how desperately we need to worship God and how deserving He is of our worship. We know these truths, but we forget these truths. See, Jesus seriously upset the Jewish leaders in His cleansing of the temple. And we can sympathize with them. I mean, imagine if you were there. You're, you're one of the pilgrims. Maybe you're even a money changer. You're just doing your job. And this man comes in and disturbs it all. See, we also don't like being disturbed. The history of the Christian church actually demonstrates this fact. That the church will accept false doctrine even false Gospels, as long as they're melded into existing traditions or the changes are not too extravagant. See, it's not error that disturbs the church so much as change, as disruption. See, most of the Jews would have been okay with the change Jesus advocated because they understood the purpose of the temple. Now, if Jesus would have just gotten up and He would have made a petition... Saying, okay, let's, you know, you would have started a lecture series. This is the purpose of the temple. Let's look, guys. This is kind of a distraction. They would have understood. But the reality is they had accepted, they accepted the status quo and slowly over time, the focus of the temple altered. It was no longer about worshiping God. It was in making a buck. See, because the worshipers were coming from all over Israel, 
the money changers and the animal merchants originally provided a very good service, a necessary service, in fact. The money changers allowed the pilgrims to convert their coins so that they could actually pay the temple tax. And the animal merchants... The animal merchants allowed the pilgrims to purchase acceptable animals for the Passover sacrifices. See, in doing this, they, they served the pilgrims so they didn't have to take all their animals across, you know, 50, 60, 100 miles of, of journeying, you know, dragging their animals behind them. They could just buy them there. Or they could make sure they're getting the right sacrifice. They're not, they're not presenting some blemish. They can get the right one. And so originally, these animal merchants had set up their services across the Kidron Valley. But slowly, we see in history, slowly those animal merchants got closer and closer and closer to the temple. Probably because of convenience. Right? If you just have the animal merchants in the temple, they're right there. We can understand that as Americans. We like convenience. But the point is, the, the world had slowly crept in, and it actually, in the process, destroyed the whole purpose. And the world continues to creep in on worship just as it did 2,000 years ago. But there's some significant differences. We no longer worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Where is God's temple now? Yeah, it's us. With the inauguration of the New Covenant, Christians have become the temple. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So you are the temple. God's Spirit dwells in you now. But just as the world crept in to God's most holy place, 2,000 years ago, the same tactic is used today to distract us from our purpose. When a person is saved by the Holy Spirit, he takes up residence in their bodies, making their bodies the dwelling place of God. And that's why worship is no longer conformed to, it's, it's not about following uh, external rituals and forms, but worship is manifested in the way we think, right? Romans 12. Manifest in the way we think and the decisions that we make. And just as the world slowly crept in the temple of Jerusalem, likewise, it creeps into the temple of our own hearts. What elements of the world try to creep into your hearts and distract you from your created worship, your created purpose to worship God? What distractions do you have in your life from that which you should be zealous for. And if this question makes you uncomfortable, it shows that you're actually taking it seriously. Because Jesus is still as passionate for pure and undistracted worship as He was 2,000 years ago. Jesus' heart for the Father to be worshipped in spirit and truth has not changed. The situation of the temple has changed, but his passion for it has not. 
And just as the Jews were offended by the uproar that Jesus caused, similarly, we get uncomfortable with the prospect of what Jesus might demand if He were to purify our hearts for their design purpose. What is it that Jesus might demand of me? What distractions might He demand that I get out of my life so that I could be living solely and completely for Him? It's when Christ's demand becomes personal that it becomes scary. Threatening, maybe. And this should make us uncomfortable because even the reality of the situation is that even the most zealous among us struggle. Even the most zealous Christians you know struggle to do this. This is made all the, all, all, all the more difficult because of the fast pace, this market-driven society that we live in. We're bombarded with all sorts of distraction that, that, that make it easy for us to lose focus of what really matters. And what makes it worse is these distractions come to us in many different forms. Yes, sometimes they're just overt sin. Sometimes the things that distract us are good things. In fact, I think for most of us, it's the good things that distract us. But the reality is we can't live for just the good. We've been called to live for the greatest thing. And all those good things need to line up under the greatest thing. That is that God might be worshipped. We need to realize that even the greatest things can divert our attention from the best thing. And so to draw on the events in John 2, these money changers in our lives, they need to be put in their proper place. Where they function to aid us in our worship, not to distract us from our worship. And I would encourage you to search your heart for distractions. And to deal with them until you also are consumed with such a zeal for God's glory that that becomes your particular and passionate pursuit. That when people think of you, they recognize that's a person that loves God with all their heart. They are zealous for Christ. And the idea of being zealous for something might even make us, you know, the idea of a religious zealot in our culture, you know, brings up imagery of, you know, some person living in Idaho stockpiling guns in their backyard and waiting for, you know, the apocalypse. So all sorts of wacky things come to mind. But this is what you're called to. This is our example. Right? Despite what people might think in their minds, we are called as worshipers. We've been freed from the worship of self. We no longer take our cues from our society. We take our cues from our Lord. And we are called to follow in His example. And what that's going to look like is going to be different for each one of us. Right? It's our responsibility to look at our lives. What am I living for? Why do I make the decisions I make? Is it for God and His glory? Or is it for myself? And the reality is, as we learn to do this, this is where we're going to find more joy, more fulfillment. Because that's the reason behind it. It's not because God's this cosmic killjoy. 
our true joy, our true satisfaction is being found in worshiping Him, in doing His will. When we do that, yes, it might hurt like it hurt Christ, like it hurt David, like it hurt so many of the prophets that we read about in Scripture. But I, for one, would rather burn up my life living like one of those prophets than gaining the whole world and yet forfeiting my soul. In fact, that's kind of bringing it back to um, what I started with at the beginning. That's why I chose to become a chaplain. Uh, there are so many aspects of being a chaplain that are extremely painful. And I have to wake up every day and ask myself, why am I doing this? And if I, if it was, you know, to be able to wear a cool uniform, be able to get a discount, you know, a couple times a year, you know, that'd be reason to leave. Yeah, the reason I joined was so that I could share the gospel with men and women in uniform. And many of them have have no access. They've just no no exposure to the truth. But it comes with quite a cost. Um, but the reason, yeah, again, the reason the reason we've made and it comes with a cost to my family too, and that's hard. But again, the reason that I've made that decision is because of this truth. I can't. I don't do things because they're easy, because they're comfortable. You know, why take on more ministries? Because my life is my own. Why take this job? Why take that job? You know, and that's me, right? I don't think each of you is called necessarily to that point. And praise God for that. But you have been called to something. To be a better parent. To, to serve in another ministry. To give more money, more time, uh, you know the opportunities. You know your gifts. You know what's available. And this is not about necessarily, it's not about making yourself more impressive to the people around you. This is about you serving your God and not yourself. And that is so countercultural that it's hard to embrace. But, brothers and sisters, because it's so countercultural, embrace it. We don't live like the world anymore. Our lives are not our own. They're for Him. So I'd encourage you, what is it the Lord's called you to? Cut out the distractions. Live for what's best. And do it with joy. And therefore, even when you experience loss, even when you experience pain, you can stand confidently. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for Him. And one day, you'll recognize it was worth it. As Jesus told Peter, many will have lost you know, fathers, mothers. They've had to abandon their friends. But on that day, it'll be returned to them a hundredfold. None, nothing that you sacrifice for Christ in this life will not be repaid back, will not be worth it in the end. But do it for Him. Not for your glory, not so that Christians would stand up and give you an applause, 
And maybe the sacrifice that you have may be the fact that nobody knows the pain that you're going through. I think all the more, that just shows that you live for Him and not for yourself. So let's, as a church, let's live those sorts of lives. So that we too can be greater witnesses to our world, have a greater impact, and fulfill our created purpose of worshiping Him with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our mind. This text terrifies me. Father, I tremble at what You might call me to give up. And the only comfort I have in that is You are good and You are sovereign. And not one hair of my head will fall to the ground without Your design. Strengthen my faith. Strengthen the faith of my brothers and sisters. Because we want to be these kind of people, but God, it's hard sometimes. It's hard when the pain becomes real. But when we see the consequences in other people. Lord, what You call us to is not something that we can do on our own strength, nor do we want to. We've been given such a great example. I love You, Christ, not just because of what You've done for me and giving me eternal life, giving me a life worth living a purpose worth living for, but I love You because You are amazing in what You did. That You would leave Your Father's throne above and die for Your enemies. That they might, that they might reign with You. It's amazing. God, give us strength that we might follow in your footsteps and give us clarity. Let no one take on more than they should, give up more than they should, but let no one hold back for the sake of Your glory and for their joy. Give us wisdom and exalt Your name through Your church. We pray these things in Your name.